Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And now that the exams are in sight, I think I might change up the format of a podcast a little bit, at least for the next couple episodes. So I'm now starting to think not just about each day's reading, but instead about everything that I've read as a whole, trying to connect it with one another to make something that makes sense. If you've been following this podcast from the beginning, you'll notice that we jump around a lot. We go from theme to theme, from century to century, uh, from country to country. And I appreciate that that's going to be pretty confusing for people, especially for people who don't have the basic narrative already in their heads. So what I'm going to do for the next couple episodes, at least, is I'm going to lay out a series of podcasts that might mirror a lecture class that I teach about these topics. Now, for the next couple episodes, I'm going to be talking about a class that I like to call Social Life in the Anthropocene. And this class is kind of my pitch about this kind of global urban history of the environment. And uh, let's get started. This first episode is going to be on the relationship between food and energy. This mini-series is going to talk about the global cultural history of the modern urban world. It's going to approach these issues in perhaps a little bit of a uh, distinctive way. We're going to talk about concepts like global, cultural, modern, and world differently. The base of that difference is that I take seriously the idea that human beings are not just political animals or cultural animals or social animals, but that human beings are animals that exist within an environment that we create. One of the biggest changes in the history of the human animal is that over the past 200 years, we've been increasingly shaping our own environment intentionally and unintentionally. The big argument of this entire mini-series is that the world that we live in today, a lot of the things that we think of are important, a lot of the ways that we live uh, in an everyday way, from breakfast to lunch to work to the way we get to work to, you know, the places that we watch our TV, all of those have their historical roots in big ecological changes that take place over the 18th and 19th centuries. And these changes first happened on a medium-sized archipelago off of the coast of Eurasia, Britain. And there's a lot of different ways that we can see this big global change. Um, and if this were a lecture class, I would then click a PowerPoint slide and show a bunch of graphs. Here is a graph of the population of the world. You see it stays pretty stable from like Roman times on through uh, the Middle Ages, you know, here's the Black Death. Uh, and then here is this change that we're talking about. And I'd hover my little uh, laser pointer over the place where the graph goes from straight to going straight up. Similarly, click, I'm clicking the PowerPoint slide. Here is a, a graph of energy use per capita over this same time period and the graph will have the same sh the same shape 
Click again with sulfur dioxide per capita. Click again a graph of the percentage of people on Earth who live in cities. Click again on number of books. Click again on life expectancy. Here we have a story told in numbers of this epochal shift in human life. And I want to tell you why I think that it happened. Central to this is that a certain way of producing and consuming things started to become possible in Britain. This way of producing and consuming things used a lot more energy than things had done before, but it also led to greater individual material prosperity. But essential to it were new ways of working and consuming. The ways of working we might think of as, at some times, uh, liberating, and at other times, incredibly constraining. And the new ways of consuming, too, we might think of in some ways as wasteful, or in other ways as providing people with opportunities to create new kinds of artistic identities. What we take for as modern culture, what you think of as modern culture in your other classes, I think has at its root these changes to the ways of producing and consuming things. But just to be fair, there's a bunch of other ways that you can explain this change. You might make a course about these same topics dealing uh, with all of these changes as the result of changes in technology. The prime movers of the story would not be my prime movers, they would instead be prime movers of machines and geniuses and science and research and development labs and marketing and the whole gigantic knowledge creation process that some of you uh, who work in R&D, some of you who are scientists, might actually be involved in. We might then talk about inventors like James Watt. We might then talk about inventions like penicillin. We might then look at how they change human life. And we're going to look at all that, but those inventors are not going to be the main part of our story. Similarly, we can tell the story of this time period through a political lens. A political story might see this time period as one in which new kinds of political formations, most notably nation-states, start to be able to push their kind of force and control over greater numbers of people, forcing them to do greater amounts of things, to work ever harder in service of the state. If we looked at it this way, we might look at uh, politicians who create national ideas like Bismarck, or in Britain we might look at the imperialism that grew up around Queen Victoria. Similarly, we might look at the institutions that pushed these new political formations, newspapers that told people what to believe, that told people that they were members of the nation. Uh, different kinds of spreading languages, mainly through schools. My, the greatest fact about this is that uh, during the Resorgimento, when Italy was united from a bunch of weird little city-states to the nation of Italy, only 2% of the population spoke Italian. And what the Italian government did was it sent off teachers to all these little villages to teach the kids Italian. What we know of as Italian is, as many people know, just the dialect of what people spoke in Florence. 
And this Florentine dialect was so alien to so many people, especially in the South, that when they saw the teachers in their wool suits and their briefcases and their books, hearing them talk a weird language, they thought they were British. Another way that we might view this story is a triumphant story, a story of the rise of reason and free markets and capitalism over the forces of tradition and superstition and, uh, you know, grubby mercantilism. In this story, our heroes would be companies that would push out new ways of making things. Our heroes would maybe be the politicians who knock down the barriers to free trade, but our hero most of all would be the force of the free market that encourages people to create new things that itself, by its unhindered action, creates prosperity. And we might take a pessimistic view of this same process and say, yeah, this story of the 18th and 19th century is the story of capitalism, but it's the story of capitalism eating everything on earth. We would then tell this story through looking at factories and the immiseration of factory workers. We'd look at the slaves who would pick the cotton for the factories. We would look at the rise of the middle class and how new kinds of political orientations agglomerated around people's social economic position, the beginning of class politics. Then we would tell the story of how the middle class got kind of wrenched away from the working class, how the working class learned to vote against its interest. All those stories are possible to make with the data at hand. I've read those stories and I've taken a lot from them, and I believe all of them to a certain extent. But I'm going to tell this story from a different perspective. In this story, all of these changes are the interaction between two big developments. The first is the availability of cheap energy. A big thing will be coal. We'll be focusing a lot on how people use fossil energy to do new things, and how that affects a lot of the things that we think of as cultural. But we should also think of cheap energy as uh, what is known as ghost acres, uh, people using new places on Earth like sugar islands in the Caribbean that give them energy, that give them calories that they don't have to get themselves. So slavery, uh, factory work, unpaid labor in the home. And the second big thing that we will look at changes to is organization. In this world of cheap energy, there is uh, the possibility of ever larger organizations that are able to do more and more stuff. Why is that? Well, with this cheap energy world, communication and transport becomes much easier. And so the horizon of a person's activity is thousands of times broader. And this allows people to make organizations of much greater scope than ever before. And these organizations are able to accomplish a ton more through specialization, through economies of scale and scope, or through simple reach. And the key place of this change, the lens that we are going to be looking at a lot to see how these interactions happen, is the modern city. 
I choose the modern city for two big reasons. The first is that most of us are going to be city dwellers, and we can see in our daily urban lives really intimately a lot of the changes that we're going to describe today. When we wake up, when we eat breakfast, when we go to work, we do so in a world that is unintentionally global. We do so surrounded by cheap energy. When I drink my morning cup of coffee, the energy to boil the kettle comes from a power plant that is invisible to me. The coffee comes from a plantation where I don't know where it is. It might be written on the label of the uh, coffee that's produced by a large organization, but I don't read it. And then I sit down to my computer and tap into information networks that allow me to imagine myself drinking my cup of coffee not merely as a citizen of Berkeley, California, not merely as a householder, not merely as a member of a particular university, but as a member of a nation and a world. I read the world's news, but that world's news comes to me through a computer that is powered by cheap energy. And all throughout my day, every single thing that I do, you can tell a similar story of how this sense of self that I have is created through global exchanges of objects, ideas, and energy. And this starts to happen in a new way, I will argue, sometime around 1750 in London. And so in this introductory lecture, I'm going to discuss the problem of energy and population and food. And we're going to do this to explain one of the big epochal shifts in world history, something that is known as escaping the Malthusian trap. So let's think of a human being as a machine. And that machine needs fuel. And that fuel comes from food. Your breakfast cereal, your morning yogurt, your bacon and eggs. And a key problem of the world before, say, 1800, 1900, was where that food came from. Food you should think of as the result of two different cycles, the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle. And both of which are powered by the energy of the sun. If this were a lecture, I would uh, ask the class to think of energy sources, to think of the ways that people get energy before 1800. And then I would do this thing where I would demolish it and say, that's actually from the sun. So you can imagine, uh, how do people get energy? Well, people lift things. Where does that energy come from? Well, it comes from bread. Where does bread come from? Bread comes from grain. Grain comes from uh, wheat fields that uh, photosynthesize stuff from the sun, that tap into uh, uh, micronutrients in the carbon and the nitrogen cycle by the energy that comes from the sun. You might point to the wind. Uh, uh, ships sail on the wind. Wind energy comes because of how the sun heats up different parts of the oceans uh, at different temperatures. That energy indirectly comes from the sun. You might think of uh, tidal energy systems. That too, come, well, that actually comes from the moon. But I would then argue that, that at the base of, of this energy system, at the base of everything that people did, at the base of every piece of leatherwork, every book, every uh, a carriage, every horse, is the energy from the sun mostly coming from plants, some of it coming indirectly through things like wind or pigs 
or uh, uh, coal. And so central to this story is the process of agriculture, the process of growing food for people to eat. Before 1800, most people on earth lived off the land. They were agriculturalists, farmers, or people who helped out farmers. One reason for that is that it was really difficult to shift bulk produce far away. Wheat is heavy, and people need a lot of it to live, so you kind of need to be close to the places where it's grown. And energy was a constraint on what people could do. If you didn't eat enough bread, it wasn't just like a personal choice. You weren't on a diet. It was actually a limit on the amount of work you could do. One of the big questions of this time period is how much food people actually ate, whether they were actually able to work hard. In the end, it seems that people, at least in Britain, were able to get a really decent amount of food as adults that allowed them to do a lot of hard work. But that was always a question. Things could go wrong, and often did, and people often bumped into the edges of subsistence. They often went hungry. There was often a problem in getting that loaf of bread from the wheat fields into a person's mouth. And a big change that happens is that this stops being a problem increasingly. There's a way that we can frame this which is called the Malthusian Trap. Thomas Malthus was a guy who lived uh, at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries. And it's kind of ironic that he came up with his idea about uh, the constraints on uh, food production at the time that he did, because it's also probably the time when uh, constraints on food production actually stopped being a big deal. But his idea was this. We can boil it down to something simple. Growth in food will be slower than growth in populations. And so populations will grow to the extent that they bump up against their food supply. Then they will be checked by either war or disease or famine or by constraining their animal desires and not having sex. This is because Malthus noticed that when people are farming, they take the good land first. So when they need to farm for more people, they take increasingly worse land. This is something the economists amongst you will know as diminishing rate of return. But the problem is, is that human beings can reproduce really quickly, more quickly than they can uh, increase their farmland. Why is that? Well, let's say you have enough food to eat. Well, people like to have sex. And they're going to have sex until they can't have sex anymore. And so a family will be really big. It will be as big as it possibly can be until the family uh, either doesn't have enough food or people start to die off. This gives a really pessimistic view of the possibilities for humanity. We're always, always, always going to be bumping up against this ceiling of population in ways that are really violent. The preventative checks that Malthus has, these, these checks of, of uh, war and famine and disease are brutal. They mean people dying in the streets of starvation, of you know gunshot wounds. 
And even the check of the preventative check, the check where people, you know, keep their bits in their pants, requires a lot of self-control, and Malthus kind of doesn't believe it's going to happen. But obviously, it did happen. Because today we have a population in the billions. 7 billion, 8 billion, 9 billion? I don't know when I'm going to be a professor actually giving this course, so it will probably change. We have a population in the billions, and so we have two responses to Malthus. Either Malthus was plain wrong, in which case you have to explain why population levels were so small for so long, or things have changed. So let's think about how things might have changed. One big change is the Columbian Exchange, which is plants and animals going from the New World to the Old World and from the Old World to the New World. The New World got great stuff like corn and potatoes and taro. The New World got great stuff like pigs and horses and wheat and rice and syphilis. This led to two big changes we're going to talk about next time in a lot more depth. The first is that it allowed people to live in new ways off of new crops. Giving the potato or corn to a particular community meant that it could farm new areas in new ways and thus achieve higher population densities. Also, it shifted where people got food from. Many of the commodities that became valuable out of this exchange of uh, plants and animals were not actually able to be grown in the temperate regions of Europe where the people who were deciding where things were grown lived. And so you get this outsourcing of agricultural labor, a thing that's known as ghost acres, which we can see most clearly in sugar. Sugar provides essential calories to people who are living near subsistence. And where did uh, people in Europe get their sugar in the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, they got it from the New World. Sugar is enormously hard to farm because it's incredibly labor-intensive, and people have to work in um, areas that have been uh, flooded a lot. And so there's a lot of airborne diseases from things like mosquitoes. Uh, so it has really, really, really high mortality rates. And what you would get is you would get people taking Africans from Africa, shipping them over to sugar islands, working them to death, and then taking the sugar, calories, energy, oil, you can think of it as like crystallized oil, and bringing it to Europe, where Europeans would eat it and get a little bit more pep. Another process that we can think of as being essential to this is the opening up of markets, not just in the way that your libertarian economics professor will talk to you about, but also the way that markets expand geographically. People are able to trade over much larger dis distances because of improvements in communication and transport. We'll talk about this all a lot more later. But this allows not only concentrations of people in new places, i.e. cities, but also it allows people to smooth out the ups and downs of uh, their food. Instead of having to rely on a small hinterland that might be hit by some sort of agricultural crisis, people were able to do grain trade all across the world. 
In 1900, people in Britain were getting their beef from Argentina, their wheat from the Ukraine, their herbs from, you know, their country gardens. Whereas in 1700, people in London got their beef from places around London. People got their wheat from places around London, and people maybe didn't eat vegetables at all. And there's two other agricultural developments that are very important that we're probably not going to have a chance to touch on over the rest of this mini-series. The first is that fewer and fewer people live off of the land, and a greater number of people live in cities. This is tied to increasing agricultural efficiency. A smaller number of farmers can do a lot more. In Britain, this story is often told as the story of enclosure. Common lands that were once able to be farmed by pretty much anybody, landowner or not, start to get enclosed by fences and hedgerows. They start to get basically taken by landlords who farm them in new ways that people think may have been more efficient. I see this slightly differently. I don't think that this story is one of enclosure. I think that this story is one of commercialization. What happens is we shouldn't think of a unit of land as always producing like a unit of food. What happens is, is that people can work the land harder to get more stuff. But we don't like to do that. That's hard. And so people basically choose the laziest way to farm that they possibly can. However, with growing commercialization, what happens in the 18th century, people start to make these high-effort ways of farming in places that they didn't often do before. This is stuff like triennial crop rotation, marling, which includes burying ash to make crops grow better, weeding, all of this stuff. It also includes forced effort which we can think of when we think of the slaves making sugar. These are people who are forced not to be lazy like people want to be, but rather to work hard all the time. In the tropical places where they make sugar, you don't really need to work that hard to get enough food to eat. But capitalists trying to get sugar for the global market needed to work people as hard as they possibly could. They needed to work people to death. So this commercialization, this making of a food market, makes people work harder in new ways. The second big development is new fertilizer. The carbon cycle is fairly tight. Carbon doesn't go away as much as other things do. Uh, I eat a hamburger, um, it goes into my belly, I poop out the hamburger, it goes into the ground, which then grows another hamburger. There's another biological cycle, though, that does have a lot of constraints, and that is the nitrogen cycle. The nitrogen in that uh, cycle of hamburger, uh, podcaster hamburger, would leach out of the ground through rainwater. Nitrogen has to be constantly uh, re-put into the cycles of agriculture. It can be done in a bunch of ways. You can leave a field fallow, but that's not good because it means you can't use it for, you know, making more food. Um, you can plant particular kinds of crops, like legumes that have bacteria that fix nitrogen in the soil, or you can add fertilizer. Before 1800, this fertilizer might be uh, poop. Probably was poop. 
But in the 19th century, people developed an understanding of what the nitrogen cycle actually was. And so they started to realize that there were other things that they could use. The first example of this is the big guano industry. In the middle of the 19th century, there were these guano islands uh, off of the coast of South America and basically all throughout the Pacific world. Islands where birds had been nesting for hundreds if not thousands of years and pooping. They were caked in poop. You know, feet of poop. Hundreds of years of bird poop. And Europeans discovered that if you mine this bird poop and put it in uh, areas where the soil had been depleted, the soil would stop being depleted. And there started to be this global trade in South American guano. There was even a small war fought over control of the guano islands. Before the guano got depleted, and of course, uh, because you know humans, you know that the guano got depleted, people discovered another way of getting nitrogen back into the agricultural cycle. And that is called the Haber-Bosch process. It's a catalytic process that produces uh, nitrogen fertilizer, um, and it requires extreme heat and extreme pressure, i.e. lots of energy. But it produces a ton of nitrogen. Chances are, if you go to a farm, even an organic farm, you're probably going to find a lot of nitrogen fertilizer. And frankly, if you could look at you, you would probably be made up of nitrogen that had been made in this Haber-Bosch process. The food that you eat is probably mainly coming from this Haber-Bosch process. Of course, this ties in really neatly with our general story, because what do you need for the Haber-Bosch process? You need cheap energy. It's inexpensive. So just to recap, the main themes of this lecture have been how uh, at the beginning of our story, a number of developments led to people being able to break out of the Malthusian trap. These were the Columbian Exchange, uh, new, more efficient ways of farming, and discovery of new fertilizer. This is the big background on which we're going to talk about things, cheaper food. And I wanna just emphasize how the two big culprits in this process, cheap energy and new forms of organization are central to this story. It's new forms of organization that are able to ship food everywhere. It's new forms of organization that tell people that potatoes are good to eat. It's cheap energy that lets people uh, develop the Haber-Bosch process. It's the search for cheap energy that encourages people to create sugar plantations, and which in turn stimulates the slave trade. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media. If you're a Redditor, put it on Reddit somewhere. Uh, do all the things that you do to social media that you like. Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. Uh, thanks very much, and I will see you hopefully later today, because I'm going to try to be doing two of these a day.